From Anchor.fm out of Philadelphia, I'm Quincy Stallworth with Quince Questions. Today we talk with one half of the electric, powerful spoken word duo Yellow Rage, Dr. Michelle Meyer. She serves as a mentor, a professor, and a teacher here in the Philadelphia tri-state area. She holds a PhD from Temple. She is also a very valuable member of the community, and I wanted to give her a chance to talk. At the end of this interview, you will hear a live performance of Yellow Rage's Listen A-Hole. Please be advised that explicit language will be in this interview. Now, a quick message from our sponsors. Your brand is operating on your behalf 24 hours a day, and brand consistency builds confidence. At 1030 Designs, we help you build brand confidence by creating cohesive logos, social media posts, websites, and marketing materials so your audience knows who you are at a glance. We're here to help, and we're ready to get busy for you. Visit us at 1030designs.com today. That's 1030designs. Hello, everyone. This is Quincy Stallworth. I'm here with Dr. Michelle Myers, one half of the incredible duo Yellow Rage. Okay. All right, everyone, calm down. All right. How you doing there, Dr. Myers? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much, Quincy. I am so blessed to have you on because I've seen you live only three times, but it made such an impact that uh, I'm, I'm hooked and I'm a fan. And I just want to know, you know, I'm just grateful you had the time to be here, number one. I'm grateful to have you on, number two. And I'm excited. And I want to know, how did you even get started in the world of spoken word poetry? Oh, well, first of all, let me just say thank you so much for inviting me and um, for having me on your podcast. I'm just really honored um, to be able to talk to you this afternoon and um, to share my experiences and that you're, you know, and that you would even be interested in hearing about my experiences and viewpoints. Um and, you know, maybe I'll even elaborate further on uh, later on about, you know, how I view my relationship with spoken word poetry and and how in turn, you know, that helps me to kind of contextualize my relationship with others in the world around me. But um, as far as my journey into spoken word poetry, I mean, I've been a poet my whole life, but I guess specifically how I got started with spoken word poetry is um, I was actually influenced by Saul Williams and Jessica Kerr Moore, um, probably the late 1990s. And I, I happened to have been watching a television program that was on BET at the time. It was really popular in the 90s called Planet Groove. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're ever familiar with that show. Yes. But so um, I was watching an episode and, and normally they have, you know, like an R&B singer or some other musical artist on there. And this one episode, they had these um, poets, and it was Saul Williams. He performed first, and then after him, it was Jessica Care Moore and Mums, um, the poet. And I had never seen poetry performed in such a way before, where it was, um, you know, performed with such vitality and and so much emotion and energy. And um, and it was something that I felt like really connected to because for myself I had always been searching for a way to um, find expression in in a way that I felt was authentic to me and so I started to write my own spoken word poetry and then I guess um, how it led me to Yellow Rage and um, you know performing on Deaf Poetry Jam is a couple years later I heard about a writing and performance workshop at the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia, which is a community-based arts organization 
that tries to provide an artistic space for you know Asian American artists. Mm-hmm. And so I attended that workshop, and that's where I met who would be my future you know poetry partner in Yellow Rage, um, Cassie Villefon. And so I was writing spoken word poetry, and everyone else was doing more theater based uh, kind of work. And then. Kathy introduced me to this Asian American spoken word group called I Was Born With Two Tongues. She gave me a copy of their CD, Broken Speak. And after that, I was just, I just felt like um, after hearing their poetry and hearing them express, you know, their views and their identity, their, you know, the anger that they had, the pride that they had, um, the cultural expression that they used as Asian Americans, and they had done it in a way that I had never heard Asian Americans do before. I just felt like it was it was sort of a calling. And and out of that is how Kathy and I wrote our first piece, um, I'm a Woman Not a Flavor. We wrote it in that workshop and mm. it was actually inspired directly by a piece that um, that Two Tongues performs called Not Your Fetish. And mm. um, and then that's the piece that Kathy and I at the, when we first started, there were three of us. So we were all in that workshop together. It was Kathy and then there was another young woman whose name um, is Sepna Shah. And we were we wrote I'm a Woman Out of Flavor together. And then that's the poem that we used when we slammed for deaf poetry the first time that we were involved with deaf poetry. And then, you know, when they invited us back, you know, um, you know, we continued to use that poem. And then we also had Listen Asshole, which is the which is the um, the piece that eventually aired on the first season of Deaf Poetry. So after that, you know, after we got involved with Deaf Poetry, it just kind of took on a life of its own. I'm listening to uh, the progression of your spoken word pieces and how you got to where you are now. I'm in the story now. Uh, that's what I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I see a conscious fight against a very repressive and misogynistic culture. And you, even the titles, when you, when you talk about flavor, I remember, you know, when it came to ethnic women, uh, um, I one, 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 one model who I uh, um, actually interviewed, she talked about a, a European gentleman asked her to lick her skin because in his mind it was considered chocolate. You'll hear um, sometimes hip-hop artists will, will uh, mention when it comes to Latina Latinas uh, as pecan recans, uh, a taste or flavor. And I, I remember, you know, even when it comes to uh, uh, w- uh, women of Asian descent, there's that same uh, like carnivorous, uh, 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 flavorful uh, uh, fascination with, with another human being based on their skin tone. And I, I, I see that you that you've been fighting that. And it's, it, it is it is an interesting thing. How 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 have you managed to keep your sanity in a culture that's consciously uh, aggressive towards your your not only your gender but your race? You know, it's it's I think it's a constant struggle, and I have to say that before I got involved with expressing my myself through spoken word poetry, um, I had a lot of anger. I had a definitely I would say a lot of rage, and I really didn't know the best way to constructively um, address, you know, some of these topics that you're mentioning. But, you know, when I first listened to I Was Born With Two Tongues and and specifically the piece that I referred to uh, a few moments ago as inspiring, um, you know, our piece that we ended up writing for Yellow Rage, I'm a Woman on a Flavor, you know, that was the first time that I had heard an Asian, you know, Asian American women articulating our experiences of being um, sexually objectified and and fetishized, um, mm-hmm. you know, by um, you know non-Asian men, and 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 they're being angry, you know, expressing um, their experiences with that, not in a stereotypical way that I think that oftentimes gets portrayed in the media about Asian and Asian American women as being timid and passive and mm-hmm. and demure and somehow wanting that kind of attention they basically were expressing themselves in a way that was like you know f you i don't want this attention you know and and you're exotifying me and you're fetishizing me and you know and 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 all this all this other kind of thing um in terms of you know them like in their way um you know pushing back against that and and I'd had those experiences, you know, my my whole life from my teenage years into my college years and stuff where, you know, I felt like I was, 
uh, targeted um, by some men who were just interested in me because I was Asian and they were seeing me in this, you know, exotic, you know, highly sexualized way. And so um, I didn't have a way to articulate my feelings about that until I heard that piece. And so I just, there was just this sense of freedom. Um, it was almost like I, in hearing them talk about it, it was like giving me permission to speak from my own, you know, my, my own experiences and my own viewpoints on that same topic. And so I was able to do that in I'm a Woman, Not a Flavor. But, you know, the sad thing about it, you know, is, is that you would think, because we, you know, when Cassie and I first wrote um, that piece together, that was 20 years ago. Same thing with Listen, Asshole. That was 20 years ago. Right. But the sad thing is, is that it's still relevant. Yeah. Those pieces yeah. are still relevant yeah. today. Like when Katya and I were more actively touring, you know, we got to a point where we were thinking to ourselves, you know, like 15 years later, we're thinking, um, you know, these pieces are, you know, are 15 years old. Should we retire them? But the thing about it is, is that 15 years still relevant you know there's yeah. still young asian americans who are grappling with the same issues and then here it is you know you can say 20 years now and i i don't really need to change maybe they're in woman out of flavor there might be certain references that are a little outdated now you know but definitely listen asshole you know really not much it could, it's it still speaks to what a lot of um you know asian americans are experiencing still to this day and that's really the sad thing is that while we thought we were, I don't want to say we didn't make a difference, but, you know, while we were hoping that there would be more progress made um, in terms of how, um, in terms of trying to address and overturn these stereotypes about Asians and Asian Americans, it seems like they've still persisted. Do you know what I'm saying? So yes. um, that's, in many ways, that's really disheartening to me. I would like to yeah. offer you some consolation that, uh, Tupac says that he may not have been the person to change the world, but he will definitely spark the mind that will. Mm. No war is won alone with the first wave or the first defense. You are waging a war against a culture that is centuries old. So you have inspired many young women. They will continue that fight. They can build their, their attack and they can build their army on your doctrine that you've taught. You look at most religions, even even uh, even uh, of the uh, of the Islamic persuasion, you have a doctrine, and then you have people who build upon that, and now you have soldiers who are fighting for that, and you will have soldiers. So I know it seems disheartening considering what we see now, where we have a man in the White House who uh, grabbed women by body parts, and, yeah. and 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 the alternative was another guy who's been accused of rape many times. So, uh, right. you know, uh, the fight, it, the fight is, uh, afoot. So, yes, yes. Thank you so much for that, Quincy. You're absolutely right. Yes. I want to take a moment to reintroduce you. I am with Dr. Michelle Meyer. She is one half of the duo titled Yellow Rage. They are from Philadelphia. We'll be back with more Quince questions right after this. Your brand is operating on your behalf 24 hours a day, and brand consistency builds confidence. At 1030 Designs, we help you build brand confidence by creating cohesive logos, social media posts, websites, and marketing materials so your audience knows who you are at a glance. We're here to help, and we're ready to get busy for you. Visit us at 1030designs.com today. That's 1030designs.com.
Hello, everyone. This is Quincy Stallworth. I am back with the incredible, inedible Dr. Michelle Myers. <laughs> For such a serious broadcast, I should have a, a better uh, re- reception. Applause. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I love hearing it. <laughs> so let's talk about your mentorship because you have uh, you have you've inspired. And you've motivated and, and you've been an, an incredible tool of, of, of life in the city of Philadelphia. Even though you, you know you're not currently residing in Philly for a long time, you did. And you, you changed a lot of lives. And it, it, it's, it's very inspirational. And it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm grateful for what you've done here. Uh, how do, what caused you to even become a mentor? Well, thank you so much for that, Quincy. Um, You know, it just kind of came along. I I, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that I can answer that question. Um, I could say, you know, on one hand, it kind of uh, came along with the the territory, so to speak, of being a spoken word poet. And you're constantly, as a poet, interacting with your audience, you know, and there are people who come up to you afterwards and they want to want to tell you how much your work have has meant to them you know whether they've they've been familiar with your work you know for some time or whether they're just hearing it you know that that day when you're performing in front of them that that immediate kind of connection that you make with um with audience members and then when they come up to you you know there there's I, I have to say that for me, as a as a poet during the time that I was actively, um, you know, performing, and and even still now, I I feel this this very strong sense of responsibility um, to do something beyond just getting up on stage and performing. You know, mm-hmm. there was I used to have these conversations with my um, you know, my very good friend who I call you know call my sister. Um, her name is Cal, and we used to talk all the time. We used to ask ourselves questions like, is poetry enough? You know what I mean? Because for me, poetry is a vehicle for trying to initiate some kind of, um, you know, transformative process, you know, where people can see each other as human beings, you know, where we can connect with each other on a, on a human level and hear ourselves in each other's stories. And then hopefully we can move forward together rather than being divided. I mean, that's always been a goal of of why I'm a poet and why I perform and I and I, but I used to ask myself is performing enough you know is just writing a poem and get a, getting up on stage is that enough and there have been times in my life where I've said to myself it's not enough like if I'm not actively like on the ground talking to people and really trying to um you know, get involved with people's lives in a way where I can be an agent of positive change beyond just being up on stage. And I don't know for me, I can't speak for everybody else. For me, I don't know if I was doing enough. So, um, so getting involved with young people was very important to me, you know, for that reason, number one. And then number two, um, you know, for me, I did want uh, young people to feel as though I think that there we live in a culture where young people are not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times young people are told, oh, well, you know, you're however old they are. Right. You're oh, you're so young. You don't know anything. Right. You, know, you right. haven't lived through anything. Mm-hmm. But you know what? The, the fact of the matter is, is that we have you know, young people, not just teenagers, but even younger than that, you know, who have seen things that they shouldn't have seen. They've experienced things that no child should experience. You know, we right. have young people who are who are extremely traumatized. Yes. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, I definitely had came from a, a background where, you know, I had, a. I think I mentioned before, I had a lot of rage, you know, being someone who's biracial, I never fit in. And then, you know, I experienced a lot of, of trauma, um, other kind of trauma growing up um, from having family members who were alcoholic, who were drug addicts, who were drug dealers, you know, um, experiencing sexual assault um, when I was a teenager. So there was a lot that, that I myself went through, but I didn't really feel like I had, you know, any way to handle that in a productive way. And also I didn't feel as though I had any 
adults in my life who I could trust mm -hmm. um, to provide a safe space for me. And so like when I when I meet these young people and um, I think the greatest gift that for I only speaking for myself, the greatest gift that anyone can give me is their trust. Mm -hmm. And so when I have young people who are opening up to me about things that they're feeling and things they have lived and things that they want to, you know, try to work through, um, you know, I have to honor that trust that they gave to me in sharing that information with me. And so, you know, the only the only gift that I can give them in return is listening to them. And then if they're interested in writing the poetry, just telling them write from your heart. And as long as you write from your heart and, and you're comfortable with whatever it is that you're sharing, people will listen. And there's always someone out there who will want to hear your story because there are so many people out there who feel like they're they're alone. They feel like they're the only one living through what they're living through or feeling what they're feeling. And they're not. And I think that, you know, building that community and understanding that as human beings, we all share these stories, I think is the first step towards, you know, a young person, but just, you know, not just young people, anyone. It's the first step towards healing. And then it's, a, you know, and then it's the next step towards, you know, getting involved in the community and then that process continuing to move forward. And, um, and, and for me, I think there's nothing more joyful than seeing a young person get up on stage and just kind of like own that space, you know, get behind that mic and own that mic and, and, and own the words that they're saying and, and speaking their truth to power. You know, I, I know that we say this a lot, but I think that there's, I, I've, I definitely have, you know, have had these moments where I've seen in my mind, you know, this is happening right before my very eyes with young people, you know, who have found that confidence in themselves or that courage in themselves to say, I'm going to get on that mic and I'm going to speak my truth to power and then how that completely empowers them, you know. Yeah. And so um, for me, that's it's really what it's all about. Um, yeah, my poetry is something that I you know, hope one day will be um, something that I'm re remembered for, but I can't perform poetry, you know, I can't perform poetry forever, right? But I hope that part of what will really be my legacy is, you know, the people that I've been able to work with, the people, the young people that I've been able to touch and, and to encourage to express themselves, Right. you know, pass the torch. I just see it as a passing of the torch. I'm passing the torch to them. And then hopefully, you know, as they continue on, they'll, they'll, you know, keep doing this where they're, you know, boosting people up, you know what I mean? Holding you, people up. That's you mentioned, kind of you mentioned you were wondering if, po if performance was enough. And it reminded me of something that a uh, quote of Vladimir Lenin said, and he says, give me one generation of youth and I'll transform the whole world. I do believe that your poetry and your performances will transform the world. It doesn't always do it in your lifetime. Sometimes we are gifted with the chance to see the fruit of the seeds that we've planted. But I guarantee you, you've already created a change with your seeds of, of, of strong womanhood and, and strength and, and, and just, just brilliance and unity. And I, I don't want you to, to, to leave this interview without knowing that. Oh, well, well, thank you so much, Quincy. You're going you're gonna to make me cry. Uh, but, it's, it's... You know, I just, I, you know, the only thing that I can say for myself is that I just hope. You know what I mean? Right. I just hope that it has that kind of impact. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things I guess that I, I I feel at this point in my life as a poet and looking back over my years having you know toured and and performed and and stuff is that you know being in the in the mix of it all at the time I don't know if I really truly appreciated um the opportunity that i had to uh connect with people and to make a difference i don't know if i really was in the moment enough to to fully appreciate that and so now where i am now and i don't you know i don't tour as tour as much anymore you know what i mean now looking back i just hope that everything that you said you know is true that it you know that it has you know and, and will make a difference and that i can i can be more appreciative of that 
Well, I, I I totally understand. And what you are dealing with is what I like to call you're in the fray. You were in the fight. You are in the fight. You are in the fray. Sometimes when you're, um, I used to fight in mixed martial art tournaments around Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned is when you are winning and doing a great job, you don't feel like it. You feel like <laughs> this guy is about to kill me. He hits like a brick. I've never felt anything like this. And then suddenly he drops and you're like, what happened? <laughs> and, so, and and that's what it's like fighting a cultural war. You are fighting a cultural war that it that, that was here before you. It was a culture that your mother suffered from. It was a culture your grandmother suffered from. It was a culture your great grandmother suffered from. And in your lifetime, you have decided to fight an entire world system. And it's not easy. And it hits hard. And at times, it will break you, but it won't destroy you. And and you've inspired so many young women, and I've seen it. And I don't really, you know, come out, and, and I want to make this a chance so you know that you get your flowers from me in your lifetime. Aww. You have done an amazing job with some of these young women that I've seen you, I'm sure all of the young women, but some of the young women that I've seen you mentor You've done an amazing job. And I watch, you know, people, people out there are watching you, but they don't tell you. They just, they just watch to see, you know, okay, she plants like this. How's the fruit going? Because that's how you know a great mentor. You watch their fruit and then the fruit grows and it becomes, you know, productive and its seed even becomes productive. And that's how, you know, you're dealing with a great mentor and you are certainly a great mentor. Thank so, you so much for that, Quincy. And that brings me to the idea of your legacy. You mentioned your legacy. How would you like your legacy to be remembered? Oh, that, that's really, I mean, that's something that I, I'm struggling with right now because I'm constantly asking myself what a, you know, now that I'm coming into the later years of my life and perhaps, you know, my, my craft and everything, I've been asking myself a lot lately like what do I want my legacy to be and I think that really I just want you know if people remember me and they remember my poetry I think that's 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 wonderful but more than anything I just want people to remember me as someone yeah you know who was as authentic as I as I could be in in the moments you know in in the various moments that I was um, in the fray, as you said. So if it's, if that's all that it is, you know, in terms of that, I was always trying to be as authentic as possible, you know, um, and that I was heartfelt in all that I did. I think that would be good enough for me. I want to take a moment to reintroduce you everyone. I'm with the awesome and heartfelt (laughs) Dr. Michelle Myers. (laughs) We'll be back with more Quince questions right after this. Your brand is operating on your behalf 24 hours a day, and brand consistency builds confidence. At 1030 Designs, we help you build brand confidence by creating cohesive logos, social media posts, websites, and marketing materials so your audience knows who you are at a glance. We're here to help, and we're ready to get busy for you. Visit us at 1030designs.com today. That's 1030designs. Hello everyone, this is Quincy Stallworth. We are back (laughs) with Dr. (laughs) Michelle Myers. She's awesome. She's incredible. Uh, Michelle, Dr. Michelle Myers. I love saying doctor because you have a PhD, number one. You've done something that most young people of philadelphia don't think is possible you've survived and you have survived numerous trials and tribulations and you've been an inspiration for other people who have to survive and i i I want you to know that you are well received anywhere you go and and you 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 were certainly invited to the cookout as we say (laughs) I appreciate that so much. Thank you. 
Thank you, Quincy. Now, a lot of a lot of young people and a lot of parents of young people who get into spoken word, they don't really think it can open any doors for them. But it's not always about opening doors of opportunity. It's actually more about opening the ideas of opportunity in your mind. Sometimes when your mind is not expounded, you when you have your mind has not been open to new things and new new performances and new artists. You don't think the world is anything outside of your four walls and maybe the people you live with. But when you get into the world of spoken word and whether you go into slam poetry or anything, there's always uh, a a broadening of a person's understanding of life and and the world. And and I, I, you know, the fact that, you know, you hold a Ph.D. from Temple University, great school, greatest school ever. (laughs) So, um it's it, it, it's phenomenal do you have any advice for anyone who's watching you right now and they want to follow your footsteps well i think that um for young people or anyone who is interested in spoken word poetry and you know and and if i'm going to share the ways in which i think that spoken word poetry can make a difference um, I mean, there are a number of different ways in which I try to incorporate spoken word poetry um, into my, you know, my professionalism as far as being a professor, right, in, in terms of academics. And I can understand, first, let me just say, I can understand why maybe some people and parents of young people in particular might say there's, you know, there's no future, so to speak, in spoken word poetry. Like, you're not going to make money doing it. I mean, my mm-hmm. mom was the same way, you know, mm-hmm. and I guess me giving into, um, you know, going to graduate school and um, getting a PhD, you know, I kind of gave into that uh, pressure from my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, one of the things that we have to think about is that as far as, you know, young people in school, you know, I, I think we have to try to understand why it is that when, you know, there's this cutoff point where they're, you know, when people, when children are really, really young, they love school. But then suddenly at some point, I don't know what grade it is, you know, middle school or something like that, they suddenly hate going to school. And then they're resistant to learning in, in you know, in, in any way, shape or form, or at least school-based learning. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where did that love for learning go? And so for me, um, as a professor at Community College of Philadelphia, one of the ways in which I've used spoken word poetry is um, is a way to have students engaged so that they look forward to coming to school every day. Do you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yes. So um, even when they feel like they're being, um, you know, def- where they feel defeated because, you know, maybe they have a really uh, a professor who's not um, they don't feel like that they're learning from that professor or they don't feel like that professor really. Um, understands them or is supportive or whatever it is that they're looking for. Like even when they feel like they're struggling academically, they push through because they want to be involved with the spoken word poetry um, club or, you know, drop the mic or whatever other thing might be going on on campus. So they get that extra push. Um, And then I think that when they're writing poetry and they're gaining more awareness about the world and around them and they're also listening to what their peers are writing about then there's that thirst for knowledge they want to know more about oh so and so was talking about this topic oh i don't know much about that i want to look that up you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. then that's when they start um look actually doing their own research they start looking things up and then they might start writing about it or they will share information that they found out with their friends and their family and stuff and then there's this this ripple effect, you know what I mean? And so even if, I mean, I, I think that you can be an artist and you can make money as an artist, but that's, you know, something that they need to become versed into. And I try to help my, those, those of my students who want to, you know, self-publish or, you know, who want to figure out how they can expand, um, out, uh, bringing in some type of income, you know, through merchandise and stuff like that, I can kind of get them started with that. Um, you know, using social media and stuff. Usually, you know, my students are better at doing that kind of stuff, but I can usually get them um, going in the right direction and then they kind of take off with it, you know, but then for some of them too, they want more than that. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
continuing complete and the, the big thing like especially for the students that i work with at community college of philadelphia the big thing is completion you know what i mean completion to graduate so being committed to graduate graduating getting that degree do you want to continue with a four-year school okay let's talk about how you can go to a four-year college or university let's talk about scholarships and stuff and and that i guess that also goes back to you know um sometimes i'll share with my with my students um you know, so I think that students sometimes have this perception that um, their professors come from a background of privilege and, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and that yeah. their their parents pay for them to go to school, you know, mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. And I always tell them, I try to share my experience, which is, you know, I my parents were, you know, I didn't come from a privileged background. You know, my my dad uh, only had a high school diploma, went, you know, went right into the Air Force you know, was enlisted during the Vietnam War. He was stationed in Korea. That's how he met my mom. My mom was born right before the Korean War, which killed my grandfather, devastated, you know, her her family and her time growing up. And she didn't get beyond an eighth grade, um, you know, education in Korea. And so, you know, my I have I come from working class parents, you know, and I they always told me when I was growing up, even though coming having having an immigrant mother, you know, there's the push for um, taking advantage of education here in the United States because education is free. You know, in Korea mm -hmm. education is not free, and especially for young for girls. You know, yes. so um, so my mom was always pushing that, like I should consider myself lucky that I'm in the United States and I can get a free education. And so she was always pushing that, you know, to get good grades. And but when it came to grad, you know, graduating high school and going to college, my parents always told me that I was never that they weren't going to be able to pay for college. They weren't going to be able to help me. So I had to get scholarships. So I got full scholarship for undergrad. And then I got a, you know, a state scholarship that paid for my books. And that was the only way I was able to go to college, you know, and then same thing with grad school. I got fellowship um, at um, it was called a future faculty fellowship. I got that at Temple University mm. and that paid for my my graduate school, both my master's degree and my Ph.D. And so the thing that I tell my students is and, and, then, and then I also tell them this whole story about how I almost didn't go to college and that, you know, um, my guidance counselor tricked me into, uh, you know, <laughs> filling out an application. Well, I was having a lot. I mentioned before I was having a lot of problems at home and right. I was dealing with, you know, alcoholism and, you know, all kinds of stuff that was in my my home situation. And I told him I, I told my guidance counselor, there's no way I'm going to college. I don't right. care about going to college, you know, and stuff. And so he tricked me. He told me just do one application and you know back then this was when we you know we could we hand wrote our college applications you know so that's what i did i hand I wrote my college that. application it was just a form you know and then we had to do an essay yeah. and so you know i i hand wrote it and i gave it to my guidance counselor and he not only submitted it to the one college but he duplicated it and submitted to another college and i got accepted to both and then he submitted my name you know for the consideration for the state scholarship and stuff and i i always tell my students if it wasn't for that guidance counselor for his name was mr battenchuk yeah i'm gonna get emotional now if it wasn't for <laughs> mr Batten, if it wasn't for mr battenchuk i wouldn't have went to college you know and so um so anyway i always you know sometimes i share that story with my students and i tell them you know um first of all you need to know who your support systems are so that means not only, you know, if you don't have, hopefully you have a support system at home, but if you don't, then you have to find your support system at school. You need to find mm -hmm. those teachers and those counselors who, who tell you that you can do it no matter right. what, you know, right. they always, they're always in your corner. You know, they're always, you have to find those people who are always going to be on your side. And then I tell them, you know, even when you feel like you can't do it, you can. And there's always, you know, a, a way, there's always a way. If you don't have money to go to college, you can find a way, you know, not, not in terms of, I, I always try to encourage my students not to, uh, you know, to not to look into loans too much because of the debt, you know, right, the debt crisis right. that we're in, but scholarships and stuff like that. And so I think that going back to, you know, your original question, um, you know, and also alluding back to something that I said before, as far as the spoken word poetry part, I think that as long as they are able to get into with among a community of people who are 
thinking in these positive ways and are looking for a way to um, to progress in whatever direction that they want to go, that they're more apt to find that support system and also to find the resources they need to be able to achieve it. You know, they become more they become more determined, you know, to um, set those goals and to achieve them. And even if it's not directly becoming like a professional spoken word poet, I think that the the skills and the sense of community that they develop um, getting involved with spoken word poetry, um, you know, uh, enables them to to develop, you know, that that mindset and that and that viewpoint and, and then develop those skills that they need in order to be successful. Mm. So I hope that parents would see the positive. And, yeah. You know, and all yeah. Of that. yeah. And it's so it's so difficult to talk to working class parents about the potential of their children when their parents didn't see potential in them outside of a civil service job or, right. or um, any kind of blue collar work, which is, which is great work, which is great work. But, you know, sometimes you'll come across people who, you know, they're in blue collar jobs and they could have been so much more or, or you know, it's just, it's, it's the reality of, uh, of what it's, how important it is to, be invested in your child's future. Absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's also about, um, you know, when we go from generation to generation, you know, making that progress. Um, you know, my mom always used to say to me, uh, when I was growing up, she, cause my mom basically, she, when I was growing up, she was a seamstress. She worked in a sewing factory cause that was really the only work that she could do. And mm. My mom always used to say, if I had been able to go to school and get an education, I could have been anything. That's what my mom mm. always used to say, you know. Mm. And and so, again, like I have to think about the um, how how lucky I was, you know, the to have the opportunities that I had that sometimes, you know, in the case for myself, my mom that my mom didn't have. You know what I mean? And and to make the, the choices that are going to not only, I guess, you know, lead to a, a, a good life for myself, but I guess also that would make, I hope anyway, would make my family proud, you know. And these, I guess these are the kinds of things that um, oftentimes comes up uh, with the, the students that I work with. Mm-hmm with spoken word poetry because they I think that's something that they you know value too you know they want to um they want to make the people around them proud you know and they also have an idea for themselves the way they envision themselves you know where they want to be in a year or in five years or or something like that and then you know and then before where they might have been the self-talk that they might have um you know had going on in their heads might have been no I can't do that but with the spoken word poetry, they can say, oh, I can do anything I want. You know what I mean? I can find a way. And so um, it's always really wonderful, uh, you know, to see that shift. What have you learned about yourself that you didn't know before this whole pandemic? I know you don't have access to your students as much as it's, as you would have liked to in the past. And that has been a burden for mentors like yourself. Oh, I think that, you know, one of the things that I've learned um, about myself during this pandemic is, um, I, I think it's several things. First of all, that that I do have a limit. <laughs> like usually, you know, I, 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 have, I do have a limit because I'll work. I mean, I was working when, the, when we first shifted to online learning, you know, in, in March. I was spending like 12 hours a day, seven days a week, like on my computer, you know, working, trying to work with my students and um, maybe, you know, sometimes even 15 hours a day. And, and then I literally made myself sick, you know? And so I said, first of all, you need to buy a better chair because if you're going to sit down (laughs) for that long, you're going to have some back issues. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I mean, I think, I think that it did like, you know, my body let me know, especially because I was, I, when I'm doing in-person teaching, I'm never sitting down, you know, I'm always running around, you know, Mm -hmm. on the go. I stand up during class. I don't Mm -hmm. sit down during class and then I'm, you know, running from class to class, you know, and stuff. And then suddenly I went from that, you know, pretty much five days a week or whatever. And then every day I was just sitting, you know, for, Mm -hmm. for, Mm -hmm. like I said, like, you know, anywhere between uh, 10 to 15 hours a day. So, 
Um, so I, I realized that 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 I had a limit, you know, and and so I had to like really listen to my body first of all, and then also I had to um, think about my emotional and mental wellness, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but I I I think that the other thing that I've learned about myself during this pandemic is that um, you know I can I can still be support, supportive for my students and I can can listen to them in in different ways you know that I'm capable of of making that adjustment so I've I've really this um, fall semester is been because you know back in the spring it was just kind of frantic the whole thing was just you know finishing the semester and just trying to get my students through right. um, I think was the most important thing but this this fall it's um part of it is getting them through because for some of them it, it's still a very difficult process to do everything you know via um the internet you know yeah, do yeah. every online learning when really what they want is that that in-person attention mm -hmm. but i think you know just being present for them you know i can i can be I didn't know how present I could be through email. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so finding ways where before as before probably be more of an in-person thing, you yeah. know, where I'm trying to be present and supportive and mm -hmm. trying to be reassuring, like in class, like being more mindful of, you know, how I construct my responses to them when they're reaching out to me um, and they're completely stressed out, you know what yeah. I mean? And they're, and they're on the edge and, and 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 knowing that i think that i've become much more intentional about you know how i can create that that supportive space through you know an email through an electronic you know uh, transmission of of you know just words you know what i mean yeah. so i didn't know how much i was able to create that kind of environment you know in an email but i i found that um that it's I have them. So, you know, hopefully my students feel like I've been there for them, you know, this fall semester. You're a caring um, teacher. You're, you're a very caring uh, professor. You're very caring. And that is that is uh, something that gets overlooked in our society, especially when we deal with people who work in the, work, in the field of education. And, you know, I'll hear people complain, especially in a in, in other states like uh, New Jersey, which is incredible with, with his teachers and all, but you hear people complain, oh, they make too much money. And it's like, but you couldn't do that. You know, if we, if we valued our educators, like we value our sports athletes, the world, yeah. America would be a different country. Yeah. Yeah. What's next for a great woman such as yourself? Oh, I don't know, you know, right now I'm just kind of taking things one, you know, one project at a time, one thing at a time. Um, you know, I have some things that I'm working on. I, I, it's kind of too soon for that. I feel like to kind of talk about too much stuff, but mm -hmm. I think for me, I'm, I'm trying to think more about, um, especially since there isn't any, there isn't very much live performance anymore since the pandemic. Um, yeah. I've been thinking more about, um, you know, print and print forms of, of my work. Mm. And so, um, you know, I did have a poem earlier this year that was, um, published in an online journal. And I've been also, uh, I don't want to say that I'm shifting away from poetry. I think that my writing is transforming so that I'm, I've become really interested in creative nonfiction. And so I've been writing a lot more um, and, and flash creative nonfiction. So that's still the, you know, the um, the influence of spoken word poetry. I don't want to write anything too long. You know, like right. I have this, I, I, I want it to be, I know sometimes I look at these uh, uh, creative nonfiction journals and I look at ones that accept flash nonfiction and some of it's like 800 words, 1000 words, you know what I mean? So I'm like, some of it's 300 words, you know, you can get, you can get even lower than that. Some of them is only a hundred words. And so like challenging myself to, um, you know, through storytelling, can I do storytelling in just 300 words? You know mm. what I mean? And yes. like challenging myself in that way, but then also creative nonfiction. So I, you know, really reflecting back over my life, I've, I've, you know, been my mom passed away uh, two and a half years ago oh, and I've, 
Yeah, thank you. It's it's I, I, I've always written poetry about my mom, but I think that, you know, with her passing, um, I've been reflecting back on our relationship and in other ways now. I, I was watching um I was watching uh, a television program recently and Lenny Kravitz was on there. He just published a memoir and yes, yes. he yeah, and he was talking in the interview he was talking about um how he had had a, a very um, conflicting relationship with his father his whole life, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I identify with Lenny Kravitz a lot because he's also biracial, you know, mm-hmm. and so he, you know, he had a, um, you know, a very kind of contentious relationship with his father most of his life and his father passed away a few years ago and he said he was talking about how this memoir enabled him to kind of reimagine um you know his relationship and appreciate it in a different with his father in a different way and he said something that was really amazing to me and he said um and i'm paraphrasing i don't remember exactly how he put it but he said something like even when someone isn't on this earth anymore that doesn't mean that our relationship with them can't evolve that's Mm. what he said and i and i thought he expressed that in exactly the way that i feel like um you know i've been uh thinking about my mom and writing about my mom. So a lot of these creative nonfiction pieces do kind of uh, revolve around my relationship with my mom. And, and I see exactly what Lenny Krauts was saying, like my, even though she's not here anymore, she, she is still present for me and my relationship with her continues to evolve, you know? So that's kind of um, what I've been doing with my work most recently. I want to say thank you. And uh, we're not going to leave the people with nothing. Uh, actually, uh, I'm going to play an excerpt or the entire piece of Listen, Asshole by uh, Yellow Rage. Can you can you speak on this before we play it? Um, in what way do you want me to, to speak about <laughs> it? <laughs> I mean, there's so much stuff that I could say. <laughs> well, I'm going to play it and I want to prep our listeners for the explosive the, the the power and the this is the this is what I like to call the, the first punch shots fired shots yeah. fired. <laughs> well, I think that I, well, first of all, I guess I like to say that a lot of times people, especially you know back in in those days um, when Kathy and I would perform, and uh, you know we would have we would like actually have people who who weren't familiar with us who would introduce us right before we would perform and they would say something like oh there's a couple of nice asian girls are about to come up and who knows what they're gonna you know like they would like say stuff like and sometimes they were we would definitely see it as being very sexist because a lot of times there was men you know we even had somebody who said something like oh i I guess they're going to perform poems about flowers and daisies and you know and stuff and then we come up and be like listen asshole you know and then they would be like afterwards they'd be like oh shit you know (laughs) well i'm laughing i'm laughing because they think it's like uh when you see um uh somebody's uh brazilian uh female brazilian mixed martial artists it's so amusing seeing them take on guys because guys we're like this hundred and 30 pound female and, and then the guy gets choked out and we're all laughing that's just so, it's so amazing and funny and so, yeah it, well definitely well Cassie and i definitely always enjoyed it afterwards because they definitely they're you mean they're you could see it on their faces they looked at us in a completely different way you know after we got done performing so i guess maybe giving um your listeners a heads up to that but i guess uh maybe what i'd like to add is that um, you know, in terms of the reason why Katy and I wrote these pieces, um, just really quickly. Well, first of all, this was based on a, a piece that was originally um, written by Katy, and then um, in the workshop that I had mentioned earlier, uh, when we wrote on the Woman Out of Flavor, and then uh, when Deaf Poetry asked us to uh, to perform and then be a part of the first live Deaf Poetry Jam show. Um, in 2001, uh, we were like, we got, we need another Pete. We need something else besides I'm a woman on a flavor. And so that's how we wrote listen asshole. And so I wrote my verse for it. And so basically, uh, our, our thinking, uh, in approaching how we wrote this was, um, you know, the things that people say to us that, you know, we wish we could just clear our minds on whatever mm-hmm. it is that we want to say, you know, so, um, you know, when people, ask questions 
that clearly, you know, are um, based on stereotypes or, um, you know, reflect their ignorance. And I think there's a difference because sometimes people will ask me the question, oh, well, when does a question like, what are you? When is that offensive? And, and for me, the answer is when you ask me the question, what are you? And I tell you what I am and you say, no, you're not. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you, uh, you asked me and I told you, and then how dare you try to tell me who I am? You know what I mean? And so, um, uh, and then I guess if they're coming, if they're approaching that question, you know, who are, you know, what are you in a way? Um, where it's completely founded in stereotypes and they want to impose their stereotypes on you rather than uh, really learning, you know what I mean? Something about your identity or your culture or whatever. That's when it can be insulting, you know what I mean? Gotcha. And so, um, so, you know, that's kind of where how Cassie and I approached, you know, writing that poem. All right. So for everyone listening, this is Yellow Rage with Listen, Asshole. In Philadelphia, Yellow Rage. Listen, asshole. My Watch words my were meant to be mentioned in the sickness. You missed the wrong energy. You missed the manhandling. My tongue fucks it all up. My man's on the steel tip of communication. Mr. Jones, listen to me. And if you don't know, motherfucker, it makes me mad. Listen, asshole. Stop trying to guess what I am. Stop trying to tell me what I'm not. I was born in Seoul, which makes me Korean. These slightly slanted eyes ain't just for seeing. Bitch, I see right through you. You expert on me with your fake Asian tattoo. You expert on me with your Taibo and Kung Fu. So what? You try to dim some and dent some on the menu. So what? You a fan of Lucy Liu. So, so what? You, you read, read the Joy Luck Club too. That makes you an expert on how I should look? Fuck you. What the fuck do you know about being Asian? <laughs> Dr. Myers for coming on. Dr. Michelle Myers can be found on Facebook and on Instagram. There you can connect with her and find out about her mentorship programs, option, and life coaching. Quince Questions has been a production of Anchor.fm and the good people over at Spotify. The music you heard was all provided to us by EpidemicSounds.com. We also want to thank the talented staff of 1030designs.com for crafting our logos and promotional material. The performance of Yellow Rage was 
from HBO. Make sure you subscribe to HBO Max. That's a great platform. They got lots of good DC Comics stuff coming out next year. Please like and subscribe. The Quince Questions community. Join the Quince Questions army on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Quincy Stallworth. Thank you for listening and have a great day.